This episode is sponsored by CDN77. Trusted by the European Space Agency, CDN77 supports the latest tech innovations and provides fast, secure, and reliable content delivery solutions all around the world. Learn more at cdn77.com LNL. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 9th of July 2018. I'm Joe and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Well, the sun is shining, it's terribly hot, England are winning at football and our government is about to collapse, but let's not talk about that, let's talk about Linux. And let's get into some news. The first bit of news is that SUSE has been acquired again for quite a lot of money. Yeah, when I first heard this story, I thought, is this another mystery purchase by Blue Systems? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've got that much money. <laughs> so this time they've been acquired by a company called EQT, who are a big investment firm, and they invest in all sorts of things. I read today that they're investing in a sort of payments system, I think a mobile payment system. So they've got a lot of money to throw around, and in this case, $2.53 billion, which is considerably more than was paid for SUSE last time. It's funny that they sort of just keep getting passed around and every time it's for a little bit more money. Um, it makes you think that they must be profitable. There must be something worth buying there. And yet it's not really a distro that I think about very often, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's not a company I think of either, but they have seem to have gotten about 23% of the uh, Linux market um, and they're... They've got sales of over 320 million in the, the period that ended 31st of October, apparently, um, and a growth rate of 13%. So clearly they're doing well, which is bizarre given how little we all seem to maybe uh, take note of what they're doing. So maybe they're just a bit under the radar, or maybe it's Germany only. I don't know. Caesar has been this way for quite a while, hasn't it? I mean, even, even 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they were kind of best known for boxes you know, and sending CDs with a great big manual, which was, was fantastic at the time. And even when you meet SUSE people, it's all a little bit like Cute used to be in the Trolltech. Um, there's a lot of private money and trying to find niche markets, which they seem to be quite effective in finding. I hear that they're a big backend for SAP. Um, so that must be quite a lucrative market, I would think. Hmm. I was talking to Chris about this yesterday on Linux Action News, and he made the point that it's just EQT wanting to get into the Kubernetes market. And they couldn't buy Red Hat or Canonical, so they just went with SUSE as a sort of uh, third choice. I don't know how much truth there is in that, but it does make you wonder. Mm. Maybe they thought that Kubernetes was a KDE project. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that um, you think of SUSE and KDE, right? But that's only really open SUSE. When I spoke to Richard... He told me that um, you, there isn't even a Plasma desktop on um, SUSE Enterprise. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's all GNOME, basically. Mm. Yeah, I think that goes back to when they were with, um, when Nat Friedman and Miguel were kind of, I don't know, were they bought by Novell, owned by Novell? Something, something was going on there. And everybody was going GNOME corporate desktop and trying to push that out that way, which is quite funny because that's why KDE doesn't get much love from any of the big distros. Um, so it's quite interesting, I think. It's still better. Yes, GNOME is still better than KDE. No. 
No, even I agree with you on that one. But let's not uh, troll the audience again. Do you think there's going to be any difference for Arm Souza? I, I don't think so. I think it's just going to be business as usual with a different owner. Yeah, and Richard went on record to say that it would be no change for Open Souza. Yeah, and we've seen it before, and people were skeptical before, but Open Souza and Souza generally is a, a project and a company that makes technical decisions rather than political ones. And okay, we might not all necessarily agree with them, things like BioFS or whatever, but it seems that they do make those decisions based on their technical merits. And I can't see that changing. So it's Sousa is not really the distro for me, but I can see why people do like it and do use it, especially in the enterprise. And I don't think this is going to change much. If anything, it'll be good for them, really, because of a bit of injection of money and a company who actually cares about Sousa, maybe... But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's bad news anyway. It's a real shame they uh, didn't get into Munich back in the day, and maybe that could have all gone an awful lot better. Yeah. It is a shame, yeah. You always think about that. Why did Munich roll their own, you know, sort of custom version of Ubuntu? Why didn't they just go to Canonical or SUSE, make it simple? It's a German company. If they'd built a system based around SUSE Enterprise, it would have just been so much better for them and yeah maybe it would have spread to other cities and other countries but uh just wasn't to be all right well let's talk about gentoo and their embarrassing mishap that's happened over the last couple of weeks their github organization was compromised uh it was because of bad passwords lack of two-factor just rookie mistakes uh it's not like the main gentoo repositories or anything it was just a mirror but it still looks pretty bad for gentoo yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm surely most of us are using two-factor authentication for almost everything that accepts it and have been for a while, and especially Gen 2. I mean, it's stating the obvious. You'd expect them to have adopted it before us, of course, you know, before it was cool. Yeah, the weird thing is it was a person who apparently didn't even need to have admin account access, which was kind of even more annoying. Um, just shows you that managing accounts is still really hard and painful. Well, yeah, we touched on this uh, a few shows back when we talked about new projects setting up and getting all of these sort of foundational components in place. Um, and yes, sysadmin has, has got to be up there with the most important tasks to get right first time. Well, look at what GNOME are doing. It's not actually in our news here, but they are spending the money that they recently got on a few different posts, one of which is a sysadmin because it is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. Glad to see they listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I always make this joke when Gentoo comes up. Surely everyone's moved on to Arch. I mean, Graham, you're a, an Arch user as as well as uh, various other things. Did you ever use Gentoo before? So very, very early on in uh, my kind of, um, I don't want to say magazine career, but we were kind of made to use it um, really just because we had to understand from Gen 2 users perspective so I did but at the time I found it very painful in fact that was part of the reason why I tried ended up using Arch because I felt like Arch solved many of the problems that Gen 2 had when I initially tried it which must have been I don't know 2003 or 2004 you know just, just too much effort basically for too little return I really wasn't interested in setting my own kernel options. Yeah one time I started compiling it I think it was on a P4 processor and uh when i realized how long it was going to take i thought nah fuck that <laughs> so <laughs> i've never even bothered with it whereas arch is sort of 
a little bit of a hassle to set up. I know there's various things like Antergos or whatever that make it really easy, but um, yeah, it's fairly difficult and fairly satisfying, I suppose, once you get it all up and running. Yeah. And that's that's geeky enough for me without resorting to Gen 2 or, or even worse, Linux from scratch. Well, I, I mean, there are different distributions for different things. And for Arch, for me, more more than anything really, was just is just a learning exercise. It's just a way of keeping in touch with, with the bare metal in a way and, and knowing exactly what's running. And I find it interesting. It's kind of an intellectual exercise, you know. And I may well use Ubuntu to actually get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of Ubuntu, there is now minimal Ubuntu, which it, this is starting to get a bit confusing now because they've got the minimal ISOs, uh, the minimal installer option, and now something called minimal Ubuntu. And what this is, is sort of a stripped down image, mostly for cloud stuff, really, which has a smaller footprint, uh, smaller image size, boots more quickly. It doesn't have any of the languages stuff, doesn't have any of the fluff, basically. It's very much pared down and seems very attractive to me for running on-premises as well as in the cloud. But I think the branding, I don't know, Will, you need to have a word, mate. The branding's all over the place there. It's too confusing. Well, I thought they used to have a product like this called, I don't know how you used to pronounce it. It's one of those words I've never seen it written down. Jeos, just, whatever, J-E-O-S, just enough OS. And that used to be a boot option on a CD, so... I actually thought that was quite a good name. I don't know why they ditched that or decided for this. Well, yes, a fair point. There are quite a lot of minimals, and we need to be able to differentiate between all of these things. So that's a fair point. I shall raise that uh, next week when I see all of the product managers. But the yeah, the, the idea behind this particular minimal install is that it is for machines to create machines, not for human beings to get in there and start using them as, as they would a normal server. Um, yeah, that's why they can strip all of the, the extra stuff out, and that's why it obviously boots that much quicker, because there's there's lot less in there. But it still doesn't boot as quickly as some other alternatives, like um, Clear Linux, for example. Yeah, I don't really know what Clear Linux, what packages it comes with, but I imagine that going from the very base level Clear OS install up to something that you could potentially use as a everyday server is probably a bit more involved, whereas the Ubuntu one, yeah, it's a hop, skip and a jump away from a full server install. But we're not exactly talking about, you know, days or weeks here. We're talking about about eight seconds maximum, which I, I'm not really sure what we're doing with this eight seconds extra that we get over the entire running time of the image. So, well, I think that these machines are, are ones that are fired up. You know, fire up a hundred machines now, work on on something, and then disappear and they're gone. Uh, and then two minutes later, you want to start another hundred machines up. So, I think it is important that they do start up as quickly as possible because they are very very short lived machines. So wherever the you know, there are seconds to save. That's uh, that's quite an important saving, I think. Ironic, we were just talking about Gen 2, and then we have the most <laughs> <Yeah>. Gen 2-like. <laughs> What's that term he is? Ricers, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you remember the website? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tea trays in the back yeah. of a six and sat. It's wonderful it's still there. <laughs> but what I like about this is that it is Ubuntu. It's not a different version. It's not like with RHEL and CentOS and Fedora and, you know, Confusion there. It is just Ubuntu, but it is very stripped down. And you can install whatever you want because you've got apt and you've got snap. So you could potentially take this image and build a whole Ubuntu desktop out of it if you were so inclined. Yeah. 
But I mean, don't do that. But you could do if you wanted to. <laughs> oh, it'd be fun. I might try it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's I like that. You've got one Ubuntu pretty much, whether that is the desktop or any of the flavors or the server image. I mean, yeah, okay, you've also got core, but that's like a, a different thing slightly. But you know, it's it's not like with SUSE we've talked about there. You've got the enterprise edition. You've got the open edition. Um, th- that is what I think is potentially going to be behind the success of Ubuntu long term is that it's not confusing for people. You can just use one operating system and do whatever you want with it. And if you need to pay for support, you can do so. Or if you just want to chance it and do it yourself, you can also do that. So uh, yeah. I don't know, I'm sounding like an advert for Ubuntu <laughs> and Canonical here. Should uh, probably shut up. Um so a bit more on Ubuntu. Ubuntu Studio have released an audio handbook, which is a very comprehensive guide to producing audio with Ubuntu Studio. Um, Graham, I know that you are into audio as well, so presumably you uh, thought this was quite cool. Yeah, I mean, any any documentation is a brilliant thing. <laughs> and and anything, that docu- anything that documents the particularly arcane world of Linux audio and, and actually producing stuff for Linux audio is, is an, another brilliant thing, really. so many It causes so many questions. Um, so many people want to get started with Linux and audio because it's just a cool thing to try and do. And it is difficult. There's a huge learning curve in just getting a sound, especially as you've got to start off with Jack, which is a nice thing that Ubuntu Studio solves for you. Yeah, I was going to mention Jack. It's so powerful. You can do so much with it, but it's just a nightmare. Even on Ubuntu Studio, it is very difficult to route all the audio exactly how you want it to. It's not intuitive. Okay, maybe it's not difficult, but it's it's not intuitive, is it? It it takes some reading, basically, and that, this is what this is all about. Yeah, yeah. Jack is Jack is horrible. <laughs> um, in in similar ways to Pulse Audio, in that I think. Pulse Audio is massively improving, but that's because it, they make a very good minimalist selection of things to present to the user, despite in the back end, you've got all of the syncs and the sources and a million ways of configuring Bluetooth devices, and Jack can do all that. The trouble with Jack is that you need to wrestle with all that just to get a, a bleep out of your sound card. Sound card? <laughs> <laughs> well, some people still have PCI cards for sound, I think. Yeah, well, Maybe. My, mine's FireWire, so it's kind of close, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think also the the main UI to Jack, the cute um, Jack config application is really long in the tooth and it really needs someone to come up with a, a, a much simplified interface to the way that Jack works. The thing that struck me, not that I have any clue what most of these things do with attack, delay, God knows what, but the software looks pretty good looking. I mean, that's obviously damning with faint praise but is this software good is it comparable to anything that is professionally out there open source software yeah the the ones that they they would obviously things like um let me see qsynth and things like that i don't even know what these things do so there's a there's a handful the thing is with commercial proprietary audio applications there are just thousands maybe even tens of thousands there are certainly thousands of synths and guitar effects and they're generally quite good 
Um, with Linux in open source, there's maybe a handful, you know, there's 10 or a dozen that you might want to put together to create something. But that, if you're, if you're into making music, you know, that limitation is quite exciting and, you know, you can work with it. And so some of those synths do sound good. You know, Q-Synth is very effective. Hydrogen is a great drum machine. Um, my favorite is Helm, which never gets mentioned. And I don't even know if it's in uh, Ubuntu Studio. Helm is, Helm is a synth that can really compete with commercial offerings on other platforms. Okay, well, before we move on from this topic, let's quickly talk about AudioKit, which is a FOSS synth that is supposedly pro-level, but it's available for the iPad of all things. So the iPad is actually very good at doing audio. I think mostly because they've got the audio latency really down to just a few milliseconds. So you can you can interact with controls on the screen and it takes literally, you can't hear the difference in time it takes for that change to affect the audio, and much more so than Android, which has got a higher, more unpredictable latency. And there's much more jitter in Android audio, unfortunately. Um, so you did ask me to try out this synth. Unfortunately, my iPad is one of those, um, it's the first Retina, the third generation one, so it only runs iOS 9. But I did take a look at the specs of the synth, and the, as you say, it's it's completely open source, so I think that's a really cool thing for anyone who wants to look into iOS audio development. Um, first and foremost, this, the source isn't yet available. They promised to make it available in July. But the synth itself is a pretty standard. I don't. I don't want to get too geeky. It sounds pretty good. It doesn't sound amazing. It's got some very interesting micro tuning capabilities, which I quite like. The video on their website gave me diabetes, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it. It sounds quite ordinary. It's. It works in the same way that many classic synths work, except for it's got an inverse envelope on the filter. Um, oh, I hate when that happens. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. <laughs> but the um but you can create it's got a load of scales for changing the, so you, you try and play one note and you can afflict it with another scale if you want, which you know, all the geeks like the microtuning. The most important question is can you make it go wop wop wop? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very easily. There's two big knobs to do that. <laughs> all right, excellent. That's the main thing, isn't it? Okay, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. They are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK, and they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 18.04. And they are a company who really cares about Linux. This is all they do. It's not a side project for them. They are a Linux-only company. And they've got a great range of laptops from fairly affordable stuff all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA graphics. So you can find something, whether it's just for a bit of email and light browsing, all the way up to 3D art, video editing, machine learning, and graphic design. And they also have some desktops and servers, and almost everything's configurable in terms of CPU, RAM, storage. And if you can't find something on the website to suit your needs, then get in contact and they can sort something out bespoke for you. They're very approachable and very nice people, so they will sort you out one way or another. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then there's a drop-down box at checkout to select late-night Linux. So they'll know that we sent you there. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Um, all right, well, it's kind of not exactly news, but um, a couple of things that caught my eye over the last couple of weeks. Um, 20 years of open source and also 20 years of the Apache license. It's funny that We've had, what, 35-ish years of free software mm. and now 20 years of open source. So there's, it's now been longer 
since oh how can i say this it's been longer since open source was invented to now than it was back to when free software was invented that probably didn't make any sense but it's been around for an awfully long time now and it just sort of highlights the difference to me that you know you've got this open source movement which it should have so much in common with the free software movement and and does in fact have a lot in common but it's just fundamentally different, isn't it? And I always split the difference, or I usually split the difference to say FOSS, but a lot of people will fall on one side or the other. Um, Phelim, I think I know, I don't know, are you a free software man? No, you, you tend to say open source, don't you? I, yeah, I just say it mainly because people don't know what free software is, unfortunately. It's a brand that has not fared as well as open source does, where it depends on who you're talking to. Um, I find just more people know what open source is, but they wouldn't know what I was talking about if I said free software. Yes, and maybe I should grow a large beard, pick my toes and educate them about that, but <laughs> there's too many hours in the day that I just don't have to be doing that. So Right on. I do, I do like free software, but I just... <laughs> Fair enough. But Graham, you always talk about free software, I, I seem to recall. Well, I think this is, I mean, I agree with, I agree with both Will and Phelim. It's, it's basically because in the past I've, I've been like, um, when you, when you publish magazines and you say something out, like Gen 2, for example, it's the same with Libra. It's the same with, if we mentioned guns, you just get like a hundred emails and some people actually writing letters or somebody sending in an, an encrypted USB stick. So purely from that perspective, when I used to work in publishing, I got into the habit of saying open source slash free software and trying to cover all bases purely to try and limit the amount of hate that we'd get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like on destination Linux, they call it GNOME GNOME just to cover both bases there. <laughs> So yeah, that's really and, and like Phelim, it's you know I've met people where saying free software was the only acceptable thing to say, and you know, but most people open source is fine and makes much better sense. The fact that you have to explain what free means in the concept of free software is a a loser for me. Yeah, but is it not worth the effort of explaining that? No, <laughs> no, because open source is such a pragmatic movement, isn't it? It's it's just a purely pragmatic thing that. The source is open, and therefore it's going to be more secure. It's we're going to be able to collaborate on it, and you know, Stallman and Co make this argument that it forgets the fundamental issue here that it's about freedom. I mean, is that just bollocks? Then, well, for me, you've got to get people using it. That's the first problem. Yeah, you kind of kind of lure people in by the it costs nothing, and then they can always, if they fancy it, get the ideals a bit later. Yeah, it's better. It's a better way to use software and a better way to modify software and safeguard your future of using software. You know, these are the reasons why I try to evangelize free software. And then, you know, if people want to, it's it's just, I don't know, you just don't want to evangelize too much, do you? You just want them to see the advantages and go on their own way. So do you think that after 20 years, it's time um, they buried the hatchet and the two movements came together? I mean, I suppose open source doesn't really care about free software, whereas the free software movement very much hates the term open source. But is it time that the free software people just embraced the term of open source and tried to um, lure people in to using it uh, with the, the pragmatic approach? And Because there are plenty of pragmatic reasons for using FAST. Um, 
security is the one I always jump to. And it, it, in most cases, especially anything that doesn't involve a, a graphical user interface, it is just better. So should they just accept it? I mean, we talked about this um, when I tried to get Stallman on the show. And I think I said it at the time that he just needs to accept it and sort of move on. But it just doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon, does it? I think it would be an interesting thought experiment to see whether over these last 20 years, there would be more people using free software open source, were there a unified term for the technology, or whether the Free Software Foundation and free software as a term actually exerts the correct kind of correcting pressure on the movement. And, and in fact, that has helped. I, and I don't, I can't really answer that. I don't know. But isn't the term open source supposed to be the unified, simplified, corporate friendly term? As far as that group of people are concerned, there's nothing to talk about here. I, th I think the point they're trying to make, though, is the fact that open source literally means open source and doesn't encompass all of the extra pieces, you know, the the influential cultural side of things where you're trying to actually change people's minds about it. You're not trying to say you can't charge money for it. You're more saying, you know, this shouldn't be used to entrap and ensnare people. Whereas you can look at an awful lot of big open source projects like the likes of MariaDB and the stuff, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with what they're doing, but they do have a tendency to have this open core bit in the middle. And then if you want to actually do anything useful with it or supported, you're going to pay an awful lot of money. And, you know, that's up to them to do that. But it does kind of sort of smell a bit like the first one's for free. If you want to do anything else, yeah, it's going to cost you. But you know how English, I think, is unique, or at least it's certainly very unusual in that free and free mean the same thing. And pretty much every other language has a different term for, you know, uh, gratis and Libra and that sort of thing. And it, it makes me wonder, I know we have a lot of international listeners, so do get in touch with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. How is it talked about in other languages? Presumably, this is not a problem. It's just referred to as free software. But then is open source a popular enough term that, it just gets called that. I suspect as much, but I don't know. I'd, I'd like to know. So uh, people in other countries do uh, do let me know. But yeah, the other part of this was 20 years of the Apache license, um, which is a very popular permissive license, which I suppose kind of goes alongside the open source movement, doesn't it? Because it's not as user respecting as the GPL, for example. And Stallman and co would always encourage people to not use um, weak licenses, as they say, or permissive, as we would say. And yet these permissive licenses are getting more and more popular, it seems. Yeah, and I actually think they've contributed to the success of open source. But at the detriment of free software, perhaps. Yeah. But there was a worrying balance to strike in, in permissive licenses becoming popular. Um, I was at a conference a couple of years ago where basically bringing up the GPL compared to something like MAT or Apache was kind of booed and laughed at, you know, which is something you certainly wouldn't have got 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and I find that a worrying trend. Um, but I think Apache has its place. And I, I like the Apache license um, precisely because you can kind of throw it out there. And, you know, I don't see how they can be unified. Maybe there is no unification. Would you value a project more given given a, given a project and you have 
two alternate realities. One is the GPL version of it, and one is a permissive license like Apache. Which would you prefer if they start identical? It would depend. For, if, you, if you're asking me, it depends on the project. Um, honestly, if I was working on some kind of embedded system with the thought of selling it, I'd choose Apache. Mm. If I wanted something that I, I wanted community involvement in a kind of safeguarding way, I'd choose the GPL. And if you were just a user? I would build my community and then decide on a license. <laughs> well, I think the question there, Phelan, is just as just a home end user or whatever, or even as a sysadmin or whatever, uh, you know, you're not in control of this thing, but if you could choose to use one or the other, I think surely most people would choose GPL. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm opening a can of worms by saying that, but I know I would. I mean, I have no problem with the more permissive licenses. I have a bit of a problem with some of the hypocrisy regarding the language of the GPL. Um, you know, people who advocate it saying that it is like more free or whatever, when the reality is that permissive licenses are quite literally more free. And we've had this argument many times, but um, it, it's it's like uh, an analogy would be having a car and doing whatever you want with it versus having a few restrictions like you're not allowed to run people over. I mean, that's probably <laughs> a terrible, terrible analogy, but uh, it's like you know, cereal. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, it's like zero. <laughs> but yeah, I think some restrictions can be positive, can have a net positive. And if I were to write software, I would use some form of the GPL, probably two rather than three. And I definitely wouldn't allow or later because that's just losing control as far as I'm concerned. But um, I totally understand why people who want it to be just totally free would use these permissive licenses. Phelan, you've been quite down on permissive licenses in the past. Like you're not a big fan of the BSDs, for example. No, no I don't know how you picked up on that, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I see. I don't think they instill the same level of, well, it's not trust. It's just, I don't know if they're going to be round because to me it seems like they are literally throwing it over a wall i mean i know people in B who use bsd will say oh no it isn't but look at the numbers in their community versus the members in the linux community for instance and i don't think people are too good at being completely altruistic so i think sometimes you need rules to have fun as you say at the start of fostock live every time yeah, um, yeah. You've got to control the fun. Yeah. Well, I think to a certain extent we do, because I don't think we do well with, you know, it's like, you know, if you, if you see uh, architecture, you always see the most interesting architecture when it's a weird shape or, you know, it's trying to shoehorn a building into somewhere where it shouldn't really fit. That's when you see the interesting stuff because you've kind of got a limitation to it. Whereas I think if you give people no limitations, I just think people don't care. It doesn't really work out as well, but I could be wrong. It's funny that ties back in with um, the discussion about audio and synths and everything, and how if you have uh, a, a commercial proprietary platform like Windows or macOS, you've got so much choice there. There's always new synths coming out, there's always new drum machines, and it ends up where you just spend all your time playing with new toys and never actually get anything done. Whereas with Linux and open source free software applications, there aren't many of them. So if you do start using them, then you're not going to fall victim to that. You're going to just get on with it and make some music. Yeah, it's like 8-bit assembler in the SID chip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. 
Okay, so on to a bit of admin then. And thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. And if you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in contact, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact. And that's it. Normally, there's loads of other stuff to mention, but um, I don't know. It's summer. There's not much going on. Uh, I think that's about it for now then. Okay, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com slash LNL. That's for Late Night Linux. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform. And apart from sponsoring loads of open source projects like CentOS and KDE and Fedora and Gentoo, one of their biggest clients is the European Space Agency, and they are delivering Hubble images all around the world. They were the first CDN to implement HTTP2 and Brotley compression, and they're a real innovation leader. Everything's developed in-house, and they managed to push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine through server optimization. And they've got 500 servers all running Debian, which is what runs this CDN, and only a few of them are VMs. The vast majority of them are physical servers. And they've got 30 points of presence all over the world in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with over 7 terabits per second network capacity. They've got great 24-7 live support, and you can either go pay-as-you-go or they've got monthly pricing plans uh, with no commitments or hidden costs. If you go to cdn77.com slash LNL, you can get a 14-day trial with no credit card needed. And if you do decide to stick with them, check out their first payment bonus. If you do sign up using our link, then you'll get an extra 10% off that. So go to cdn77.com slash LNL and start delivering your content. All right, so I don't want to go on about Fostalk Live again, but I'm going to, so fuck you. Um, after Fostalk Live, Stuart Langridge wrote a couple of blog posts about it. And one of them was very interesting. The other one was shit. No, they were both good. But <laughs> one of them was particularly interesting because it was about smaller FOSS events generally and the fact that there should be more of them as far as he's concerned. And he talked about how you've got the big corporate events and then you've got kind of meetups in pubs which are just tiny, whereas Fostock Live is kind of a mid-range event, kind of 50, 60-ish people. It's organized a little bit more than just, hey, let's all go to the pub. But then it's not like a proper, um, well, even a big community event like Og Camp, which is over essentially three days. Um, and obviously, I think he's right. Otherwise, I wouldn't have organized it three years in a row. But I just wanted to get your guys' take on it. Like, Do you think that we should have more, not necessarily podcast related, but just events of that kind of organizational level, that little step up from the small ones, um, do you think we should have more of them? Um, I assume we're all going to agree on that because we had a great time at Fast Talk Live. Some of us weren't there. There's no need to rub it in. Thanks. <laughs> well, you have been before, so you know that it's good fun. <laughs> uh, so how do we make some more of them, <laughs> to quote Partridge? Like, how, how do we uh, – what kind of events could we put on that would attract that kind of crowd? There's a bit of a trend in these sort of conferences at the moment for a big corporate or even a small corporate to sponsor them and you know have it in their offices and have plenty of merch on display um, and you know, get trying to get people aware of their own brand. Um, I'd like to steer it away from that, and I think that what Foss Talk Live does by having it downstairs in a pub is make it that much more uh, relaxed and informal, and I think that that is the one of the the ingredients in making it feel like it's fun and you're there with a bunch of like-minded people rather than some kind of um, 
yeah, duty to stand there and pay attention and listen to what's going on. You should just be able to have a laugh. But one of the criticisms that Stuart had was that it was all middle-aged white blokes there. Now, I don't want to get into a big argument about diversity, but um, making it more relaxed, the simple thing is do it in a pub. But that doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone. Like, you can't really have children there. There's certain people who don't drink, for example, for whatever reasons, um, uh, or, or don't feel comfortable in pubs. So how can you make that relaxed feeling without it being in a pub, essentially? Do it in a cafe. <laughs> Do it in a cafe, but a cafe that sells booze because I just I can't, I can't do anything without booze, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's quite a good idea. And I, I suppose if you look at um, the, the maker space scene, there's quite a lot of that. I mean, there's the, the Egg and Raspberry Jam, which I've been to a few times, which probably is about the same number of people. And pr- I think that lasts maybe two or three hours. So it's it, it's somewhat similar to Fostalk Live in the, the size and feel of it. But that's all based around Raspberry Pis in that case. And, you know, there's other various maker things. The thing is you need to have the thing to orbit around, whatever that thing is. And it was live podcasts in the case of Fostock Live and Raspberry Jams are the the Raspberry Pi. But how can you have it be more sort of general free software open source type stuff without just, right, let's all meet up in a pub? Well, so for Fostock Live, yes, there were uh, a a pre-selected, um presenters there you know we knew who was going to be there but what we didn't know is what they were going to talk about um and you didn't know that until you got there as an attendee uh, you know the 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 program was not fixed you 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 had a rough idea about how it was going to go down but you didn't know what the topics were going to be so i wouldn't like to say that it's essential that you have a core uh, technology or you know piece of software or ideology that you want to cir- to to gather around it's about having a, a group of people that you know and that you can expect to be entertained by being the hosts of the event, I think. Well, the thing that I'm thinking of immediately is um, on conferences like OGCamp, but maybe there's a, a market, as it were, for half a day, just an evening, or you know, like we do Fossil Live on a Saturday afternoon into the evening maybe you could do that but just have it being on conference but how do you attract the people there in the first place um you know the the chance to meet internet celebrities like graham <laughs> and the rest of the linux voice team obviously is enough for uh, 50 or 60 people to come to Fostalk live but without yeah i think you're right well you need to have some uh someone entertaining or well known or you know someone who will draw the crowds maybe mm. But then most of those people want paying. So <laughs> that, then you've got the problem because what makes Fostock Live great is the fact that it's free. The venue is free. So no money has to change hands. Yeah, we have the bucket for buying us beers or whatever, but that's totally voluntary. And the second you have to start paying people, then you have to start charging people or get sponsors and money gets involved and it gets complicated. Um, so I don't know. I just I feel like I want to go to more of that kind of thing. And I don't have any concrete answers. Of, you know, we're getting there now, but um, we should try and brainstorm an event now, uh, and hopefully someone can organise it. But like, you know, what? How would you do it? How, how would you start? I think we need to think about the location first and foremost, because if you want to have a small event in a small place, 
then uh, you know you're really going to have to attract people to to get them to travel to to come to this event. Um, so you know London is is the natural choice. So would you say that we had it in somewhere in London? Would that or, or does that immediately exclude ninety nine percent of the other people? Well, I don't know. I think a major city, because I mean, let, let's try not to make this too UK centric. I mean, it can be all over the world, but I think that it has to be in a major population centre. Um, in the UK, whether that's London or Birmingham or Manchester or, or Glasgow or whatever, um, I, I think that it's not much use doing it in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there was talk of Ogcamp happening in Aberystwyth, um, which by all accounts is an absolutely lovely place, but it's very hard to get to. And I think that not many people would have gone to it as a result. Doing it in Sheffield is a much better idea because it's relatively easy for people to get to on trains and by car and stuff. So if you know where you're having it, then I guess that allows you to limit the headline act down to a few choice people who are local and so who you might be able to convince to come by in exchange for um, you know, a cup of tea or a pint of beer or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. So yeah, do it somewhere where there's a lot of people and where you don't have to pay someone because they're local. So um it seems like if you were around San Francisco uh, that would be quite an easy thing to do. I don't know if there's any free venues there because that's another thing. Uh, how how do you find the venue for it? If you want to just meet up in a pub with, you know, 10 people, then your choice is, or, or a cafe or whatever, then your choices are virtually endless. Whereas if you need to have a PA system and, you know, AV stuff, whatever, then that limits you as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it can depend on the country as to sort of the rules for meeting up because i remember when uh stewart and those guys were, were back doing look radio they did a look radio live in the us and they said it's an absolute nightmare to do anything there because like you have to have union people involved and you're not allowed to lift certain things you, only certain guys are able to do that and you have to have a fire code and all the sort of stuff that we probably can get away with in europe a bit more because we're maybe a bit more relaxed on it. i don't know but you know, I think it depends on where you are as to how easy that becomes. So, I mean, one other thing Stuart was saying that, you know, he has all the software he loves. He's got all the people he likes to meet up with. And, you know, for him, it's all kind of sorted in inverted commas. So it'd be, you know, he wants to meet all those people in various occasions, whatever. I think there's a danger that we kind of insulate groups of the community a bit too much and become like almost like islands of never expandingness. I, these are terrible words, I know, but if you take, for instance, uh, you know, I'm going to pick on the BSD guys because it's just too easy and I enjoy it too much. Whereas they don't look like they're expanding very massively. Yet you hear that they've got great conferences all the time, but they, from what um, Alan from uh, TechSnap used to say, you know, he's always meeting the same people at these conferences. I think the thing to avoid would be constantly meeting the same people at the same venues in various different places because you know we're not going to grow anything that way i don't think so i think that'd be a thing to watch out for yeah so you need to attract new people so that's another yeah it's not easy is it this uh, running events lark i think you need a van and i think you just need to pitch up at places and just do them at different locations joe yeah just start doing uh, this show or Start doing the drunken mashup and just see what people make of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd very much like to hear from the audience if you've got ideas for events like this and, and just thoughts on it generally. Late slash contact. Love to hear your thoughts. Uh, before we get out of here, 
Graham, sorry, man, I have to do this. What the fuck is going on with Linux voice? <laughs> well, we're just doing this to annoy you now. I think we'll carry on. <laughs> I'm, I'm nothing. I haven't spoken to Ben or Andrew or anyone for a couple of weeks now, so I don't know. Right. You did, I think, say something about July at some point. So uh... Yeah, we did agree to do it, so I know. I Isn't everyone just bored of this? Can we all move on now? I don't know. People want to hear the live recording, man. I'm going to have to like stick it on uh, the Pirate Bay or something. <laughs> I think that's that's fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know where. I'll, uh, or maybe stick it on a peer tube instance somewhere. Uh, I think Jupiter Broadcasting's got one. Uh, right. Okay. Well, we better uh, get out of here then. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with all four of us, hopefully. Uh, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.